Dear Father, thank you for this time of prayer. Thank you for the men and women who come here in a devoted fashion week after week to seek after you in your word and in prayer and fellowship. Uh, Father, that is the, the truest and simplest form of your church. Men and women gathered in your name, led by your spirit, seeking you in your word, sharing and interceding with one another and for one another. Father, that's, that's the beauty of what you've created in the spirit. It takes no specific form. It doesn't need uh, robes and uniforms and candles and stained glass and all these things that we do to create the impression of being near you uh, when you're right with us all the time, Father. And we thank you for that. We thank you the, for the ease with which we can come before you and the, the right to speak boldly to you in prayer. These things were won for us on the cross, not by our work, but we enjoy them. And we're thankful for them. And uh, probably no book more so, Father, than the book of Romans. Thank you for that book and for why it, uh, why it exists, to give us the assurance of who we are in Christ and to explain it to us in depth. We ask you to do that again tonight, Father, in Romans 6. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's time to begin a new section in our Roman study. In the section we're in tonight, Paul is going to explore ramifications of being saved by declaration of justification, yet still living in a sinful body. So that's the core of the issue today. Topics or concerns, ramifications that arise from being saved, being declared justified, but yet still living in a sinful body. He's wading into a topical area that I think dominates the concerns of every single Christian. These topics arise out of a unique situation, unique in terms of history, in which we find ourselves having come to faith in Christ and having obtained our justification, our salvation, having been declared justified, and yet at the same time living in a sinful body and feeling the strain of that sin in our life. We have a new life in Christ, but we still feel drawn back into our old life at times. And as a result of that unique situation, believers are likely to raise these concerns or questions for themselves, concerns about the consequences of the salvation they have by faith alone. You know, when you're working for your salvation, or so you think, you're never confused. You always think you've got more to do, but you're always sure that you're working on it. But when it comes to you by faith alone and not by works, you're sort of left hanging in air. You've been told what you have, and you have reasons to understand the truth of it, but you can't really touch it. In fact, some days you don't look very Christian at all. And it leaves you concerned that, though I have been told that this is true and I've understood it out of Scripture, could it change? What does it say if my behaviors don't comport with my belief? If I'm declared to be something, but I do not appear to be that something, is it still true? And if it is, why do I still have this desire to do the wrong thing? Shouldn't I be completely free of evil if I have become righteous? by God's appointment of righteousness? And if I'm declared justified by my faith in an instant, and yet I go on sinning thereafter, might it change my relationship with God? Could that salvation I obtain be undone by something I say or do or think, or by someone else's actions against me, particularly the enemy? Could the process be reversed in some way? Certainly there are those in Christendom who would tell you that that's true. Paul now is going to move to addressing those questions. He does it in three chapters that comprise what I call the fifth block of the structure of Romans. Down the bottom left corner of that page, I should just hand it out. These three chapters I summarize as the consequences of obtaining a salvation by faith. 
the consequences for your spirit, the consequences for your flesh, and I titled the last one, the security of God's righteousness, but you could also just say the consequences for eternity. So each of these three parts is in its own chapter. Chapter 6 is consequences for the spirit. Chapter 7, consequences for the flesh. Chapter 8, we'll get to later, of course, that's the security of our righteousness. Today we're going to consider just the first, that is the consequences for your spirit. What I mean is the consequences of a salvation that comes by faith and not by works. What are the consequences of that kind of salvation to your spirit? Paul's teaching that in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him, through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, so this is a new section. Most Christians have heard it preached a few times, and these words probably have a familiar ring to them. It's in some ways a problem because they're so familiar we start to fail to pay attention to the details. There's something fundamentally important in this chapter, so, so important that I don't know why we don't emphasize it more. And I have found that once people do understand it, it transforms their walk as a Christian. That's my hope to get you to that point tonight. He begins this section with his, what is one of Paul's favorite rhetorical devices, and that is asking, what shall we say then? He'll use that same device twice in this chapter, in fact. You could rephrase the question to be, what do we conclude from this? Which is referring to what he taught in the prior chapter, of course. And what he taught in chapter 5 was that we received mercy from God who acted for our sake before we even knew him. And that act of mercy in Christ had the power to reverse the mistake that Adam made, placing all humanity in bondage to sin. So it was explaining the mechanisms of God's plan to give us righteousness, how he worked it out so that one man's death could get us all into heaven. We understood that last week. So Paul now starts chapter 6 asking, what do you conclude from that truth? One of the possible answers you might give to that question would be that, well, in light of what God did for us through Christ, that justification gives us license to sin as much as we possibly want now because none of that matters anymore. We've been made righteous by someone else's actions, so our actions don't really matter to the problem of how I get to heaven. And if we continue to sin as we prefer, we'd actually be helping God, in a way, because We would be multiplying the amount of grace that God is then required to extend to us to cover all of that sin. So I'm I'm making his grace abound more by giving it more things to cover. In other words, the more I'm sinning, my justification still being true, well then the more God has to cover my sin with Christ's blood as an act of grace. That's what Paul says you could answer to his question. The more we sin, the more God is seen to be loving and merciful by giving us grace for that sin. And at the end of verse 1, Paul actually gives that same question. That is, are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? So that's one way you could answer the question of what do you make of this plan that God has made available to us? Paul says, no, that's not the correct response to God's grace. At this point, when Paul's about to address this and say what the correct response is, what reason do you give for why you can't go on sinning? In light of the way salvation works, what reason would you give for not doing it? Now, right now you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is a trick question. Every pastor I've ever had has told me I can't sin. Clearly, there must be some reason. But if you think about it objectively for a minute, that's not an easy thing to answer. 
When your behavior does not determine your course into eternity, what argument do you give someone for why they should not sin? He can't tell us we should fight against our sin because our righteousness depends upon it, because it doesn't. If it did depend on it, you'd be saying our salvation is by works. By faith alone, you are already 100% righteous before God in your heavenly account. So what does Paul say to this comment? He says, we have died to sin, so we may not live in sin. Right away, you reach the core idea of this chapter. This is the main point on the consequences of salvation for our spirit. Paul says, your old spirit was put to death with Christ, so he's saying your old spirit ceases to exist. And then he uses the concept here of baptism to explain what happened when you were saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're going to understand this comparison properly, you first have to understand the term baptism properly. The word means a washing. But there are two baptisms described in the New Testament. One is spiritual, one is physical. One God does, one we do. One produces a death and a rebirth, and the other pictures a death and a rebirth. The first baptism is the one that the Bible calls the spirit baptism, or sometimes we call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a baptism of spirit in the sense that a person is immersed, as it were, by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside a person, and in that sense, the person is completely immersed by the Spirit. It happens at the moment we're born again. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is talking about the moment of our salvation. And at the moment of our salvation, when faith comes, we are born again. At that moment, you, you receive your spiritual baptism. That is, something in you dies, and something in you is brought to life, spiritually speaking. First, your old spirit is put to death at the moment of your salvation. That spirit you receive from Adam, the spirit that was fallen, ceases to exist. In its place, you receive Christ's spirit. That is, we receive a spirit that descends from the new Adam, from Christ. Literally, not figuratively, but literally, you have been born again spiritually. The new spirit living in you traces its genealogy back to Christ now, no longer to Adam. Paul says it this way elsewhere, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When Paul mentions new creature versus old things here, he's speaking about the Spirit. We are literally something new spiritually after we come to faith in Christ. We are not saying that your existing spirit gets better or that your existing spirit starts to feel better or do better. We're saying that what you had at birth physically, the spirit you were given by your parents, is gone and in its place comes a new spirit, which is Christ's. Now, obviously, God does this baptism. This is a work of God in the spirit. He does this to us because we couldn't do it ourselves. In fact, We learned earlier in this book that we were born by that earlier nature, that sinful nature we inherited from Adam. 
that the Bible calls dead, meaning we were incapable of working anything within ourselves of good. And as we learned in Romans 3, no one seeks for God, no one does good, no, not one. Following then the moment of our salvation, placing our faith in Christ, being born again, as it's called in John 3, we are then called by Christ to take part in a second baptism, one that is now performed in a body of water by ourselves, in other words, by an act of our will. Our second baptism is a physical act. It's not a spiritual act. There's nothing metaphysical, nothing magical, nothing happens, nothing mystical about getting in the water. You're just getting in the water. You're doing it as a matter of obedience to what Christ asked of us, following our salvation. But that water baptism is important because it pictures what happened during that earlier spirit baptism. Water baptism pictures the dying of your old nature and the coming to life of your new spirit. Water, in that analogy, pictures the grave. Here's the water. Think of it as the earth. Think of it as the surface of the ground. And in that sense, it represents the grave. And so when you go down in the water, you're picturing your old spirit dying with Christ. So the person goes down in the water, and it's as if they are dead for a second. And if you leave them there long enough, it's reality, but you don't. When they are pulled up out of the water... You're picturing how their spirit has come to life in a new way as Christ's spirit from being born again. Obviously, the intended meaning of water baptism requires that the baptism be done through immersion, not through sprinkling. This is one of the ways in which we know biblically that the only way that baptism was ever intended to be was this method, because it's the only method that portrays the picture properly, which is its whole purpose for existence, to portray that picture. It has no meaning outside of that. Its only reason to exist is to picture something that you can't see otherwise. A picture of something that happened in your spirit. Paul refers to this picture now in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, when he says, we were baptized into Christ's death. So, spiritually speaking, your old spirit was buried with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking God's wrath for the sin of your spirit, of your old spirit. So, spiritually speaking... Christ was acting in our place. He was dying as our sinful spirit deserved to do. And by our faith in Christ, God then, the Father then counts his death in our place. So he can justly take our old spirit away without bringing condemnation upon us because that condemnation has already fallen on Christ. But then Paul adds that just as the Father raised Jesus from the dead... He has also raised us into a new life in the Spirit. So by your faith in Christ, you were given Christ's raised Spirit. Christ's Spirit is in you. In verse 5, Paul says, We have become united with Christ in the likeness of His death and in the likeness of His resurrection. And the term likeness there, it just reflects the fact that we share in these events spiritually. We didn't share in them physically. Obviously, you and I were not in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when he was crucified and resurrected, but spiritually we relive those moments in the time of our salvation. When we were born again, spiritually we relive what he did. Our spirit was taken away and a new spirit was brought to life in us. So what you're learning is the consequences for your spirit from this plan of salvation are profound. By the baptism of the Spirit, you have become a new person spiritually. At the moment you came to faith, you literally are something different than you ever were before spiritually. You have a, you now share in you the nature of Christ. So as much as you were like Adam, 
before you came to faith, you are just as much now like Christ. Think about that. Your spirit is every bit as perfect and sinless as Christ's own spirit, because it is his spirit. It is the same spirit. You came from it. Every believer has a perfect, sinless spirit given to him or her by the Holy Spirit at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you've ever had this thought, I wonder what Jesus must have felt or must have thought as he walked the earth. I wonder what was going on in his head. You know, what was, what was he saying to himself? You don't need to worry about that. In fact, you don't even need to guess. You have his spirit now, so you possess the same source for your thoughts and feelings when they are coming from your spirit. The overused, uh, overused adage of what would Jesus do, it suggests that you'd have to imagine or guess what he might have done. In reality, you already know. But the question is, are you paying attention? Though we have a perfect sinless spirit now, obviously we don't act sinlessly. We all know that too, right? The reason we still sin is not because our spirit is flawed. It's because we still have a source of sin in us apart from our spirit. That source is your physical body. So notice what Paul says in verses 6 through 11. He says, so knowing this, and now what he's saying is, knowing what I just explained to you from what he wrote, knowing this, that your old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Keep thinking along the train we're going and just take the next step. Paul says, your old self. Now, as we move deeper into the chapter, it's going to become increasingly important to define some of these terms. When Paul says old self, he means the spirit in you that died and is no longer part of you anymore. The one you got from Adam, the one that you no longer have in you. Paul says, your old spirit, your old self, was put to death through Christ's death so that your body might be done away with also. So here's what he's saying. Your sinful spirit was due condemnation. For all the sin of your life, it was due condemnation. And the day of your judgment, when God would have poured out his wrath on that evil, sinful spirit that we all had, that day would have come when your body died. As Hebrews says in 9.27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes judgment. In our days prior to faith, we were walking around with a spirit that was under condemnation, and justly so. And the only thing standing between it and the arrival of that condemnation was the body that we were occupying. It was still alive. As long as it was still alive, that day was still somewhere in the future. So had your body died... Before you came to faith and before you received a new spirit that was sinless, the sinful spirit that was you would have been judged by God. It would have received the justice it deserved in eternity, which is the second death, eternal separation from God. But because of his love and his mercy for you, God acted in Christ to put your sinful spirit to death before your body died. He reversed it. Rather than your body dying first, leaving your sinful spirit exposed to second death, to the condemnation that it deserved and the second death that would result, God took your spirit and put it on Christ and it suffered its second death then. That allowed for him to replace your body without there being any jeopardy for your spirit. For now, when your body dies, what will be left behind? But a perfect, sinless spirit, one that has no condemnation, for it has no sin.
for the one that deserved condemnation was already put to death in Christ. Christ's own death on the cross mirrors that same pattern, by the way. Remember, in Adam's case, what came first, physical death or spiritual death? Spiritual death, and then by the curse on the earth, physical death. What came first for Jesus on the cross? At noon, it became dark. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from the Father for the first time. That was his spiritual death. But he was still in a living body. And then physical death followed for him as well. He repeats Adam's exact pattern on the cross. He's the second Adam. And then for all who believe in Christ, we repeat that same pattern in him. We have our spiritual death first in the sense that our death in our being born again, our spirit is put to death in Christ. And then a new spirit comes. And then at some later point, we lose this body. Now, when our body eventually dies... Our spirit will already be sin-free without condemnation, and therefore there will not be that following judgment because there's nothing to judge. It's already been judged on the cross. That's what Paul means in verse 6 when he says that old spirit was put to death so that our body could be done away with, meaning so that it could be done away with without it injuring us, without it becoming a point of jeopardy for us. Our spirit is eternal. When you think of you and you say I or me and you're thinking of yourself, you're thinking really of your spirit, not your body though you may not have separated the two in your thinking. Your spirit is the eternal part of you. So by replacing the spirit before the body died, God did away with the penalty of death for you. Now the death of your body is no concern, or at least it shouldn't be, because your spirit is already right with God, and that spirit is your true identity. It's already been perfected. Your container going away is a kind of moment in time. It doesn't really change much for you in eternity. And the new thing that comes is a spirit to replace the one you had before, the new one being of Christ, the old one being of Adam. The two don't live together. I mean, you can't plug one into the other, so to speak. So there's a distinction between the two that's always maintained. So to complete the thought, one day your body does die because you don't want this body forever, trust me. And Paul says when the day comes that the body is gone, then he says you will no longer be slaves to sin. Notice that in the text, verse 7. In the future... The part of you that is continuing to sin, which is your body, your fallen body, when it dies, when it's taken away, then you will truly be freed from sin. So your spirit has died and a new one has come. That has freed your spirit from sin. But your body has to die too. When it happens, you'll be truly freed from sin. That's when we talk about being glorified, being sinless. Today we sin less. In the future, we'll be sinless. In the meantime, then, and that's where the consequences become a little trickier. Our spirit has been freed from sin. It is literally sinless. This is why you might hear someone tell you at some point, uh, as a believer now, you have no excuses anymore. You know the right thing to do, and you have the potential to do it. Now it's a matter of whether you will or not, because you have now that compass, that conscience of Christ in you, always knowing what the right thing to do is. But yet your body continues to be enslaved to sin. And in this in-between state of existence... We have to adopt a new attitude and a new perspective if we're going to gain the most out of the period of time we live in this state. Paul says that next verse 8. He says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Now, he's drawing an analogy between what was true for Christ and what is true for us. To get it in your heads right, you've got to understand what he's saying about Jesus first. So this is what he's saying. 
We have died in Christ. That is, we know our spirit has died with Christ, but our body has yet to die. Therefore, he says, if our spirit died with Christ, we believe that our body will live with him too. So what he's saying is, Jesus had his own spirit condemned on the cross, and then shortly after that, his body died as well. Then his body was raised from the dead, never to die again. And so Paul says that pattern in Christ will be our pattern as well. Death is no longer a master over him, because after he died, and in other words, his future on earth as a human being was to go to the cross. Death had that burden on him, that weight on him. All the time that he lived on the earth, he knew that's where he was headed. Once that was behind him... Death would never happen to him again. Death is no longer a master to him in that sense. No longer does that burden weigh him down. And so in verse 10, Paul says, that selfless act was done for all of us who needed it, all of us who needed that payment. So he went to the cross for us. Now, having put death behind him, now his only purpose for existence in life, so to speak, is to serve God. He doesn't have to serve us anymore. He's done that. He doesn't have to worry about death anymore. He's done that. Now it's all about what does God want me to do from this point forward. That's a way of looking at how Christ's mission went. And Paul uses that picture to draw an analogy for us. He says, we're going to follow in those same footsteps. Just as he died on the cross, his spirit first, then his body. Well, our spirit was put to death when we believed, and our body will die one day too. And then just as his body was resurrected, we will have a new body one day, raised into a new body to live on the earth again. And just as death ceased to be a master over him, death is no longer a concern for us either. And therefore... Just as Jesus could look forward to serving God the Father with no other worries and no other constraints or burdens, Paul says, you and I need to adopt exactly that same attitude. You notice he ends it that way, right? He says, even so, consider yourselves. He understands this is a matter of attention, of of an attitude, of a perspective. You have to start to think like this. You have to consider yourself to be dead to sin also, which means to start thinking in a new way. So when you speak of yourself... You're not speaking about your body. You're speaking only about your spirit. You are not your body because your body is going to die. Scripture says you never die. But your body does die, so your body is not you. Furthermore, your spirit, being perfect and sinless like Christ, never sins. So when you sin, it's not you sinning, but it's the part of you that's controlling you. We'll talk more about that in chapter 7. Your sin originates in that part of you which is destined to die, that which is not you, that which is your body. And therefore, Paul says, you've got a body about to die that's the source of all your sin, but you don't have to fear death because your spirit's already good with God. Death won't bring you any judgment. So in that sense, he's saying, death is behind you. I mean, physically it's still ahead of you, but the, the worries of it, the burdens of it, the thoughts of it, it's behind you. Much like once Christ came from the grave, that part of his mission was done. It's like, okay, I'm glad that's over with. And he never has to think about it again because Christ never has to die twice. So we should think like that is what Paul's saying. Think about the fact that death is no longer an enemy to you, no longer a master over you, has no meaning to you anymore. In fact, you welcome it because it gets you out of this in-between state that's so hard to, to deal with. So start thinking like you're Christ, which in this case means you have to start to serve God. That's what dominates your thinking. As the great philosopher Bob Dylan once said, you've got to serve somebody. So what we're saying is you could spend your life serving useless causes like trying to earn your righteousness. Well, why would you do that? You already have it. Why well, think you have to do good works to stay right with God? 
that's a works-based mentality. It's not true. You already know you're already right with God. Your spirit's already perfect. How much more can perfect be? Doing good works to please God for the sake of your righteousness, that's a waste of time. And, of course, serving the devil out of fear of death, as Hebrews says, would be a waste of time. Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We don't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to be a slave to the enemy out of a fear that death is going to bring something you can't handle. So you don't need to work for your salvation. You don't need to live out of fear of death. So what does that leave you with? What else could you be doing with your life? Well, regrettably, there's still one more bad choice. And many Christians choose this third one. They choose to live for their own dying body's sake. Paul says that next in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal, meaning your dying body, so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. And to this we all read this and we all say, well, easier said than done, Paul. And there is some truth to that, but it's not necessarily as hard as it sounds, like a lot of things in life, it comes out of how you consider this, how you think about it will drive your behavior. Thought drives behavior. Paul says, don't allow the sin in your dying body to rule over your perfect, eternal, sinless spirit. When we let, when we let our dying body decide our choices, Paul says, we're obeying its lusts. And that's a completely backward reality to who you truly are in Christ. We're letting that part of us that is going to die control that part of us that is going to live forever. We're letting the part that is not us control us. We're presenting, Paul says, the members of our body to sin. But he says instead, present ourselves to God and our members as instruments for righteousness. Now to understand what he's saying, let's understand the terms a little bit. Here's what he's saying. When Paul uses the second person pronoun, you, anything, the plural or singular, you, He's referring to your spirit, your eternal, sinless spirit. So when I say you, I'm talking about that part of you. And when he uses the term sin, you notice that he says, you are presenting the members of our body to sin. So sin is personified. I'm presenting something to sin. Sin is his description of the physical body in its fallen nature, the sinful body that you occupy. So spirit versus body. So you stop presenting the members to sin. And that leaves us wondering, well, what are the members of our body then? Well, that's just a way of describing your life of service in the body, how you use your life. These are the choices Paul is describing. Either we, the Spirit, present, or you could say dedicate, our life in this body to serving our sin nature, which leads to unrighteousness, or we, our Spirit, presents or dedicates our life in this body to serving God, which results in righteousness. You serve either God or you serve your own body. Your sinful body will always lead you to sinful outcomes. It will always want you to do the wrong thing. And of course, serving God always leads to righteous outcomes. This is important for one reason maybe more than any other. This is the way I like to think of it. If you've ever gone to a movie, and I'm sure you have, and you see in the movies good guys and bad guys, they got the black hats and the white hats, it's really easy to tell who's who. If it's a good movie, the bad guys are winning for like 90% of the movie. 
And only at the very end, somehow, James Bond wins. Or Indiana Jones wins. What are you feeling about three quarters of the way through the movie? Aren't you feeling like, it's about time the good guy wins. I'm sort of ready for that now. I'm tired of the bad guy always winning, right? You get that sense of justice. You want to see the right guy win. You're waiting for that, right? Take all that energy, all that motivation, and direct it to yourself for a moment and think about it this way. When you sin, the bad guy in you is winning, and the worst part is you're letting him. You're the one actually making it possible. You need to start thinking of the life you live in Christ as duality of life, that is, a sinful body fighting against a perfect, sinless Christ spirit that you've received. And you're this side, you're not both. This is the enemy. It's not you. It's going to go to the grave one day. It's not going to be you for very much longer anyway. I, I compare it to being like a rental car. You've heard that comparison, right? It's like when you rent a car, it's yours for a while, but you don't wash it. You don't get oil changes. You don't, you don't care. You try, not to, you try to take it home back with no gas in it. I mean, you're trying to just run it out, right? And you do that because it's not yours, right? Your body is a rental car, right? You can't ding it up too bad or you know, you're going to have to pay a fine. You also don't want to turn it back in looking brand spanking new with, you know, with, with having cleaned it. No, what's the point? You're giving it up. So you need to think of your body that way. It's an enemy. It wants you to do the wrong thing at all times. It's always set against God. It's not you. But when you obey its lusts, Paul says, you have presented the members of your body, so to speak. You've presented your life to it and said, tell me what you want me to do. And it said, ooh, I've got some ideas. And you've said, whatever you say, let's just go do those things. Now, we don't think like that, but that's the thinking. So when you start to get into a moment of sin or temptation for sin, you need to think about the movie moment and say, do I want the bad guy to win? When you start to think in those terms, you're not thinking something strange or made up. You're actually getting to the heart of what's really going on in your body. You're starting to understand the spiritual dimensions of what happened when you became a believer. Half of you got really good. Perfect. The other half of you is just as bad as it's ever been, and it can't be made right. That's why it has to go to the grave. In the meantime, it's not as though that's half you and half you and it's like the devil and the angel on your shoulder. No, it's you're all good, but you're letting something bad control you. And I don't know about you, but I hate when people get control of me in a bad way and I'm letting them do it and then you wake up one day and you're like, why am I letting this happen? And I put the poodle away and I get back to work. Paul says, your sinful body is no longer supposed to be a master over you Because it once was. That is to say, before you had the perfect spirit, you had no options. There was no other path. Now you have an option you never had before. Now it's time to stop letting that body be a master over you. And then he ends by saying, you're no longer under law, but under grace. And here again, the terms need defining a little bit. What Paul does in that last verse, in verse 14, is he compares sin and you, you know, the body versus the spirit, and law and grace. Okay, and you can see the comparison, right? Your body of sin is like the law. Your heart or spirit of perfection is like grace. Sin refers to your sinful body. So you referring to that part of you that is perfect, the law referring to the condemnation that sin deserves under law, and then, of course, that leaves grace referring to the salvation we have in the new covenant made possible by Christ's death. So if I take all that and I put it together, he's saying Christ died according to the commandments of the law, though he himself never violated the law. And in dying, he paid a penalty in his body so that we no longer are under that penalty. We're no longer under law. 
So the law no longer condemns us. It no longer rules us. It doesn't dictate what is righteousness for us. So now, having been saved by grace, we are free to live for God. We don't have to live for our own sake. We don't have to try to work ourselves to heaven. We are not in obedience to the devil. You know, we don't have any of those constraints anymore. Some in Paul's day probably heard this. That is to say, they heard that they're no longer under law. And they were aghast at the idea of it, particularly the Jews. They reacted much as I think Christians still do in some circles when I tell them or anybody tells them that they're not bound by law either, not even by the Ten Commandments, which is all part of the law. They'll say, well, how can this be? They'll say, are you suggesting it's okay for me to lie or to steal or to murder? And of course, they're asking that question to mock the idea that they aren't under the law anymore, that they aren't under the Ten Commandments. So Paul asks that very same question in that very same spirit as if to mock his own suggestion. He says, chapter 6, 15 through 18, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? That's the same kind of question as a Christian who says, What, you mean I can murder because I'm not under the Ten Commandments? Paul says, May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul answers that question, that mocking question, in exactly the same way I do whenever I'm dealing with this with people. Uh, And the answer is, of course not. No, you can't murder. No, you can't lie. No, you can't steal. But the reason why you can't has nothing to do with the Ten Commandments. We've now got in us a spirit that is perfect, that if we were to obey it in all respects, would never lead us into any of those such things. By grace, we already have all we need to do what's right, so long as we don't pay attention to the lusts of our flesh. I don't need a law written on stone to tell me not to lie. I know I'm not supposed to lie. My spirit never lies. I don't need a law written on stone that tells me don't covet or don't murder. The spirit in me that is perfect would never do such things. What I need is to not listen to my flesh when it tells me to do those things. And law never makes the flesh do what it's supposed to do. Law never produces righteousness. So no matter how many times you write it, don't covet. My flesh continues to covet. In fact, Paul says the more you tell the flesh not to covet, the more it wants to covet. Because it's literally programmed to disobey God. So the more God tells it what it shouldn't do, the more it knows what it wants to do. How do you solve that problem? You have to put in somebody a compass, a law written on their heart that is perfect in its own ability to direct our thinking and direct our steps. Now it's about whether we listen to it or not. So Paul says, we have presented ourselves in our coming to faith, we presented ourselves to Christ as his slave. We became his disciple. We are indebted to him for the ransom that he paid for us with his blood. Since he bought us, we are now his slaves. So, what does a slave do? A slave presents himself to his master, obeying his master's desires. That's what you're supposed to do now. Since Christ is inside each of us, his spirit living in us is that master. We're supposed to obey what that perfect sinless spirit is telling us we're supposed to do. If we are to be good slaves, we obey the one who bought us. Just as we once, by the way, were slaves, Paul says, to our sinful nature, and we obeyed it without question. And actually, that's a really good goal for you. That's a really good standard. If you want a standard for how you should be living as a Christian, you should obey your new master, your sinless spirit, as consistently as you once obeyed your previous master, which is your sinful spirit. 
That should be your goal. Because before you came to faith, you were a perfectly obedient slave. You did everything your master wanted. The problem was your master was evil and everything it wanted was unrighteous. But you didn't object. I mean, even in those moments when you may have done something that was objectively a good thing, you did it for selfish reasons. There was still something in your, in your sinful nature that wanted it. So now you have this perfect sinless spirit that knows everything that God wants and calls you into that walk of obedience. It only gives you directions into righteousness. And Paul says now your goal is to be as equally obedient to that instinct as you once were to your other one. He says, thanks to God that he has made you obedient from the heart to the teaching to which you were committed, to a form of teaching. He says, really awkward English coming out of the Greek. Here's what he just said. This form or pattern of teaching that he has made us obedient to is very different than the one that men had previously in the law. The previous pattern of teaching that men had to follow was the one written on stone. The law is given to Moses. It only brought condemnation, and it had no power to be master over your sinful heart. But the Greek word here for form is tupos. It means like a die or a stamp. So this is what Paul is saying. Thanks be to God that he caused us, he compelled us to be obedient to something he stamped on our heart. What do you think he stamped on your heart? This teaching that we are now obedient to. Well, that's the gospel of grace that now rules from our heart. That's the law written on our heart. He stamped it there so that now we have this pattern by which we live. We have the law of God living in us, the spirit of God that is, telling us everything that needs to happen at any given moment. Before you were a slave to sin. Now you become freed. Now you're a slave to that righteousness. So we are entrapped. We were entrapped by sin. And God freed us from that slavery, making us obedient to the call of the gospel, making us new in our spirit, where before you only had one voice directing you, sin, 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 sin. Now you have the voice of the spirit directing you into righteousness, but oh, wait a minute, you also still have that old voice of your flesh. So now you've got two voices, in a sense. One is you, one is your enemy. Which one are you going to obey? Now, in human terms, we sense all of this as a good day, or a bad day, a good moment, not such a great moment, regrets, setbacks, backsliding, conquering, all the words we throw around, victories, you know, all the words we throw around that really just reflect the, the tug of war that we all know. We feel as though we're doing well at times, other times we feel as though we're losing ground, but in reality, here's what's true for you in reality, and it never changes, your spirit remains 100% sinless, your body remains 100% sinful. Those numbers never change. It's the intersection of these two that brings opportunity for a battle. And in that battle, one side is being strengthened and the other side is being weakened. There's no standing still in this battle. So in human terms, you feel the waxing and the waning of your sanctification. And Paul speaks of that feeling as he finishes the chapter. Look at 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms. That's what he's referring to. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The weakness of our flesh is our inability to perfectly discipline the lusts of our body. The weakness of your flesh is a way of saying your inability to tell your body to do what you want all the time. We're all weak at that. No one's very good at it. We're imperfect in containing our lust because we're spiritually weak. It's like a muscle that hasn't been exercised enough. Because think about it, before you came to faith, you didn't even have the muscle. Much less try to use it. We all spent our entire existence presenting ourselves as slaves to our old sinful nature. That's all we did. We had a one-way thought about how to do everything. Now, at this point, you can begin to walk a different path. But you're starting that path, that listening to the Spirit, that disciplining of the body. You're starting at a very weak point. It's like a little muscle. You haven't really used it a lot yet. I'm talking from the standpoint of someone who's new in the faith. Or even if they've been in the faith for a while, if they've never tried this, they've never worked on sanctification, they're also sitting at a weak point. That means they're involved in a struggle. It will require that you begin to think and act in different ways if you're going to win that struggle. It means going against a lifetime of training and unrighteousness. That's a simple application of the rule of slavery, right? You can't be a slave to two masters. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters for you hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So in a sense, you've got potentially two masters now inside you, the Spirit of God who's truly the one you serve, but this body of sin that wants you to obey it, and if you let it, you'll make it your master, or at least it'll be a counterfeit master. You've probably heard this analogy. I think it came originally from Billy Graham. At least that's who I've heard was credited with it. But the idea of, of two dogs fighting... It starts with a story about a man who was a dogfighter and he'd bring dogs to a dogfight and he'd have a couple dogs with him each time he came to to go to the fights and he'd bet on his own dogs like everyone else bet on the dogs and he'd always bet on one of his two dogs and whichever one he bet on was the one that always won the fight. And the guys who saw this happening asked him one time, how do you know which of your two dogs is always going to win? And he says, oh, it's easy. It's whichever one I feed. And that became a great analogy for this battle inside us. Which side of this battle is going to win? It's whichever one you're feeding. You either feed your spirit through the disciplines that grow us spiritually, which are obvious in most respects, right? In the Word of God, in prayer, in the company of godly saints, in fellowship, in the opportunity to be counseled and exhorted and corrected, and all the things that are supposed to happen in a body where the intent is to become more Christ-like. If you're feeding on that side you're inevitably weakening the other side because it's one or the other. On the other hand, if you're indulging in the lusts of your flesh or giving little attention to the things of the Spirit, guess which one is getting stronger? It's a very simple formula. Paul says, having been freed from a slavery where there was no second choice, he says, now you have an opportunity. And he says, think about it. When you were only on the other side, serving only your body because you had no Spirit of God in you, what what did you derive from that, he said? You derive things that ultimately led to death. His point being, do you still want that? Why would you want that? Even if it's temporarily a really exciting, good thing, you know where it's going. Why would you want that? He says, on the other hand, while your old master demands behaviors that lead to death, your new master, who is more powerful, is going to lead you to sanctification. That is, to become more Christ-like, ultimately to your eternal life in glory. So which one is better to serve? He ends with one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. Great verse for evangelism. If you uh, have heard of the Romans 6.23 method, it's a very easy way to explain the gospel to somebody, breaking it down. In this one verse, you see the eternal exchange that takes place being described here. That is, Christ paid for 
the sin that we deserve to be condemned for, that the wages of our sin were death, and that death was paid for by Christ, and in its place we received the free gift of eternal life. That's the summing principle for the entire chapter. When you obey the master of sin, you are disobeying the master who saved you. You are returning to a life that you've been saved from. But you have been freed from the necessity of doing that. Now the only question is, will you consider yourself dead to sin? Will you consider this battle? Will you feed the right side of you? Most people have come to the point in their life where they say, I'm tired of my own sin, I don't know how to escape it. Well, the answer is always the same, no matter what your situation is. You don't fight sin by stopping your sinning. You fight sin by strengthening your spirit. Now, at some point, it comes down to a moment when you say no, yes. That's where the rubber hits the road. You eventually have to say no to something that you're not saying no to as of now. But how do you get to the point where you're strong enough to do that, willing to do that, wanting to do that? That requires the spirit in you have the upper hand. What the church should be doing in general is equipping the saints through all kinds of disciplines to include a fasting, which is a great way of disciplining the flesh and strengthening the spirit, so that... In corporate terms, the body is becoming more Christ-like. It's gaining the strength of the Spirit necessary to deal with the individual sin needs of our life, right? Everybody's got their own little pattern of sin. Why aren't you done with it? Why do you still have that pattern in your life? Well, because your spirit is not strengthened enough yet to sanctify that out. And because you may be a little too content with it. All of that comes to bear in a community that cares about sin enough to want to deal with it in the right ways, right? So we don't condemn sin out of a person We sanctify them up in strength to deal with it. And that's Christ's ability to work in us. So you have a perfect spirit willing to take you away from sin if you would just listen to it instead of to your body. Next week, we look at the opposite side of this equation, the consequences for your flesh that you have been saved. And that's chapter 7. We'll look at that next week. Dear Father, continue to strengthen us, Father, against this battle, and thank you for informing us of it so that we'd be prepared to consider ourselves in the right way and to face the battle in the right attitude. Father, I do pray for for all those in this room or those listening to the message that you will lead them into opportunities for sanctification through the disciplines of the faith. Let them be taught properly. Let them be prayed for. Let them be encouraged and counseled properly. Let them have brothers and sisters who will convict them as needed to ensure that they follow the path that you've put in their heart, Father. And forgive us all, Father, for the missteps we make so that we would not be discouraged by the enemy's recriminations. And Father, thank you for this study. Let it continue in your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.